Traveling the Vortex. Side trip. Hello out there in the Vortex. Welcome back to another Traveling the Vortex side trip. My name is Sean. I am speaking to you as the resident Star Trek fan slash expert slash know-it-all, at least on that side of the fandom in regards to the podcast. And uh, we've done a couple of these where uh, it was suggested that I put my knowledge to use and provide you our listeners with an insight or a look into my insight into Star Trek. And uh, so that uh, begat Star Trek 101, which was a look at the original series. Star Trek 102 was a look at the original movies. And Star Trek 201 was a look at the first season of The Next Generation. It's only been about five or four years since I last did one, so I'm back. And this is Star Trek 202. You can tell by my very clevering number system that this uh, will be a look at uh, The Next Generation Season 2. And uh, I apologize, I feel guilty. Like most of you, I have been uh, sheltering in home. Uh, at least uh, to the extent of which I'm able. I'm also considered uh, essential personnel. This is uh, coming to you in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, It's uh, mid-April almost now, so we've been hopefully now uh, kind of in our third uh, coming into the fourth week of this. And uh, hopefully, knock on wood, we have flattened the curve and uh, ready to start getting out there and being a little less paranoid and a little more social. And I feel bad because during all that time, I did not bother to produce any additional content for you. Um, Like you, many are, I'm I'm sure all of you are, you know, cowering in the basement and, uh, you know, streaming Netflix and doing the same things that I'm doing and uh, could have used some new content which unfortunately I did not provide. So um, I'm hoping to make up for it. Uh, hopefully this will go a little ways toward that and you have some something new to, uh, to listen to. Uh, keeping with the format of how we've done this before, just some quick background information. The second season of Star Trek Next Generation um, begat with, well, as the first season did, a lot of changes. Um, most of this was behind the scenes. Um, the big one was a change up in the head writing. Um, the, the next gen went through a ton of writers uh, in the writers' room, and the first season they brought in a lot of people from the original series and invited them in um, to uh, contribute scripts. Some of them worked out, some of them did not. The second season saw a lot of changeover because a lot of those writers did not like the way things were being run. And uh, in particular, the individual who wound up uh, in charge of it apparently had very specific ideas about how a show of this nature should work. And 
didn't get along with people who didn't uh, didn't didn't see it his way. And I think, and this is purely conjecture and opinion on my part, but I believe that this particular individual may be responsible for a lack of consistency and quality in the first two seasons. I think that the friction this individual caused may be the root of a majority of the problems that Next Gen suffered. Again, this is simply my opinion, and I'm not going to get into the, 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 the darkness of that whole thing. Um, I'm sure that somebody somewhere has written a book, uh, or probably two or three, about their time on the show. And if you are really interested, you can go dig that information up. But uh, for my, my two cents for what it's worth... I kind of feel that this is this is where the the buck stopped as it was. Uh, Roddenberry uh, was kind of kicked upstairs to an executive producer role, and did not have a lot of hand on control of the show. Um, didn't do a lot of the day to day things at this stage, and uh, consequently, this particular individual kind of ran the gambit of, uh, you know, being what we would think of now as a showrunner. One of the other decisions that was made during this time frame was to fire Gates McFadden. Now, Gates plays Dr. Crusher, and um, they just weren't happy with her, or at least this guy wasn't. And Roddenberry very slyly um, did not kill her character off, but simply wrote her out of the show, intending to bring her back in at a later date. And I think that, uh, once, once again, Roddenberry kind of shows that he's, he's very sneaky and, and probably smarter than a lot of people give him credit for. One of the stories I didn't get to tell about season one, Paramount did not want to pay for the engine room. They, they felt that that was a, an expense that didn't need to, to be paid for. Because, well, realistically, how much of the show is going to happen in the engine room? I, we just, we're, we're not going to do it. And Roddenberry, who had been down this road before with the original Star Trek, there are uh, a number of episodes where uh, there are no shuttlecraft because they didn't have the money in the budget to build a shuttlecraft prop. And um, so they don't have one on the ship. So it's not in any of the scripts. And it would have been a very simple... I don't know if you remember the one where Sulu is uh, trapped on you know, the planet and they're freezing and they can't use the transporter because it keeps turning weird dogs into split personality animals. And you're kind of sitting there thinking to yourself, why don't you just use the shuttlecraft to go pick them up? Well, <laughs> because we didn't have one. So not wanting to run into that again... As soon as Paramount said, well, we don't know if we really need the engine room, Roddenberry went and wrote a scene in which Picard is kind of touring the ship. And he walks, it may actually, may not, it may, now that I've said this, it's not even Picard. In Encounter Farpoint, it's Worf, I believe, who walks across the upper deck in front of the warp core. He gets on the elevator, he rides the elevator down, and then continues stage right out of frame, out of the engine room. And that's it. There's no dialogue. 
He doesn't encounter any crew members. He just walks across the room. And that scene exists solely for the purpose of getting the engine room on the call sheet so that they would have to build that set so that they would have access for it for other episodes later in the run. Which is really incredible, because if you've ever watched Star Trek The Next Generation, how many episodes do not feature at least one scene in the engine room? I mean, I, I, I defy you to name one. There, there's... I don't even know that I could do it. There, there was always a scene in the engine room. So, um, Roddenberry knew that he wanted Dr. Crusher to come back, and uh, Gates obviously didn't want to leave. But um, things being what they were, she departed the show, and uh, Kate Mulgrew came on board as Dr. Catherine Pulaski. Now, Pulaski was written specifically as a callback to... Dr. McCoy. She was supposed to be curmudgeonly. She was supposed to be kind of grumpy. She was supposed to be a little antagonistic and a little, uh, you know, had her, had her hackles up a lot of the time. And I think that worked to an extent. She was certainly a different uh, type of doctor than, uh, than Dr. Crusher was. But if you enjoyed the the track that uh, Dr. Pulaski or that Dr. Crusher and specifically Picard's relationship was kind of moving in in that first season. Uh, it, this was a very much a glaring. Let's put the brakes on and do something different now. It uh, it really changed that dynamic up quite a bit. Um, and she was very bullheaded, and I'm sure that. Some captains would have found her endearing, especially after she'd been a member of the crew for a while. If I'd been in Picard's shoes and had a, a, a head chief physician act the way that she did right off the bat, I think I would have called her into my ready room and had a very long discussion with her about what was appropriate <laughs> behavior. I don't know, maybe... Maybe I'm a little more uh, 23rd century than uh, than I like to admit. But those were kind of some of the big um, things that happened behind the scenes. Um, but certainly the biggest effect that hit Next Gen during this year was the writer's strike. Um, 89. That's a bad year. Lots and lots and lots of TV shows uh, ran into this. And as a consequence, there are less episodes uh, this season. And uh, there were many that did not get produced. Uh, many episodes didn't get written. And in a fit of ultimate desperation, the, uh, the, the showrunners wound up mining a previous Star Trek show for unproduced scripts. And if you listened to um, Star Trek 102, I'm talking about Star Trek Phase 2, which was the intent. They were going to relaunch Star Trek as a television series and wrote scripts, built sets, designed costumes, kind of went through the whole gambit. And eventually, uh, you know, it wasn't quite going the way they wanted. Star Wars came out and they said, hey, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should make this a movie instead and turned it into Star Trek The Motion Picture. 
But the first episode of, uh, of season two, The Child, is an episode that was actually written for Star Trek Phase Two. It's an old script that they kind of repurposed and uh, used here for Next Gen. And that's kind of the, the vibe. When you watch season two, you definitely get a feel that this was cobbled together a little bit. Which is surprising, because after you come off season one, you're thinking to yourself, well, it's you know, bigger and better, right? We should, we should be building on our successes, and, and the show should continue to, to grow and, and move forward. And instead, season two almost feels like a half-step back, because we're reinventing the wheel. We're doing some things a little differently, and we're doing some things over again that it's like, but I thought we had this squared away. Well, that's the reason for it, is they... Uh, encountered a lot of uh, technical difficulties, as it were. Season 2, for me, is the weakest of the Star Trek run um, of Next Gen. It's difficult for me to say that, because the highs of Season 2 are high. It has a handful of some of the best episodes of the entire run. But overall, they, th- those, those moments are surrounded by so much mediocrity that it's just going, kind of like, ugh, and it really feels like a slog. And I hate telling people this, because who wants to invest the time in a seven-season television series only to have your friend tell you, well, it really takes until season three to get good? I've had so many people tell me that with, oh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or... Uh, you know, uh, other shows. It's like, well, you got to wait till season two or three to be where it's like, well, why am I going to bother then? I've got better things to do with my time, man. Nobody can watch, you know. There's so many shows out there. Why would I waste time on this one if I have to invest in a couple of seasons that are kind of meh and then it gets good? So as I did before, I will give you um, kind of the highlight reel with uh, five episodes that are not only my favorites, but ones that you definitely should watch from this season. And in reverse order, they are, number five, Pen Pals. Now, this is going to be a choice that I don't think anybody in fandom is going to agree with, but I I will justify it. Uh, Pen Pals is a a data episode. In fact, most of season two, the good stuff, really, is kind of a data-heavy episode. Uh, All of them. And um, it's a data-heavy season in a lot of ways. But uh, Pen Pals is data is uh, communicating with a little girl on another planet. He has, uh, you know, received a transmission and he responds to it. And they start communicating back and forth not necessarily realizing the implications of what exactly he's done or, or, or what's going on. It is later revealed that this is going to have very big implications, at least on her end, because she lives on a planet that is undergoing a huge volcanic uh, eruption and a lot of tectonic activity, and she's going to die. And so then Picard is faced with the, do we go rescue her and violate the Prime Directive, or <laughs> do we do we let her go? Uh, 
and data how dare you do that and it's another one of those really great you know obviously anytime we get into the prime directive you're, you're you've got some you are primed for some really great drama and i this is an episode that i feel is very very rife with that it's it's a, it's a great strong episode and I don't think it gets a lot of love from fandom because, oh, it's that goofy one with the alien kid. The B-plot is Wesley Crusher leading a science team, which, again, fandom kind of poo-poos Wesley Crusher. He's not the, 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 he's not the best example of Star Trek, I think, in a lot of people's eyes, and they, they tend to look down on him. And maybe it's because I have met Will Wheaton Maybe it's because I understand more about where I think they were trying to go with this character. That I have a little bit more of uh, an affinity or a soft spot for Wesley episodes. They're not all good. I, I'm, I'm not going to go that far. But, uh, you know, when, when they are done well, I think he's a very effective character. And this is one that I think is done well. So that, that to me is one that I... I yeah, it's not. Again, if you're if we're going to rank these overall in the entire hierarchy of the show, no. But for the limited selection of season two goodies, I think Pen Pals is is up there. Uh, next up is the emissary. Now this is finally we get some some more faction. Uh, this is uh, a Klingon emissary arrives on the ship to uh, conduct a mission and it's revealed that uh, she's an ex-flame of wharfs and they have a history and where things go and it's really well done and it's very insightful and it gives us a lot of good information on Klingon culture, Klingon society, Klingon ritual and wharf and how wharf fits into all of that and what his mindset is and it's a very fascinating look at Worf and it, it's so very welcome because now that uh, Tashiar is gone Worf has stepped up as head of security now this is a blessing and a curse because we have now gotten the Worf effect and the Worf effect as any next-gen fan can tell you is that we have this burly seven-foot tall, eight-foot-wide Klingon security officer. Nobody's going to mess with us, right? So therefore, any time we come into a battle situation, an alien beams onto the ship and has to be threatening, well, in order for the threat to be credible, they have to take out Worf. So you take out Worf, and all of a sudden the audience goes, oh, these guys are serious. They took out Worf. They must be really, you know, they're, they're bad. Oh, now I'm concerned for the crew. Unfortunately, when you do that over and over and over and over and over again, you diminish Worf. You turn him into a wuss, and he gets knocked around incessantly. And so it's nice to have him finally given some backstory and some character development to help offset the, uh, the, the, the concussions um, <laughs> for, for what he has to put up with. Uh, number three on my list, Elementary Dear Data. 
This is a wonderful episode that almost got the production sued by the estate of Sir Conan Arthur Doyle, uh, in which uh, it's another holodeck episode, and uh, uh, they are uh, Jordy and Data are on the holodeck enjoying a Sherlock Holmes mystery. And Jordy's all kinds of excited and looking forward to it. Unfortunately, of course, well, Data has committed the entire works of Doyle to memory. So no matter what the computer does by combining elements of these different mysteries, Data still knows the answer. He's predisposed to know the answer because of, of who he is. So Jordy instructs the computer to create a villain in a Holmesian plot that can defeat Data. And it's a slip of the tongue that he doesn't catch initially. He doesn't say, give me a new Holmes adventure with a villain that could defeat Holmes. He says, a villain that could defeat Data. And the holodeck computer, being the holodeck computer, takes that literally and imbues Moriarty with self-awareness. So building on the idea from the big goodbye and and moving it into, you know, kind of the next phase. All right, we had a character in that one who kind of became aware that they were a hologram. What happens when you take that and you put it on a supervillain? And it's it's fantastic. It is great. It also helps a lot that this is finally an episode where Dr. Pulaski kind of comes into her own and is treated as something more than just the angry, grumpy foil. She has some some genuine insights and objections and arguments that you can see from her point of view and how her thought process works. And so it's all around a really very well-done character study. And it gives Picard a a great uh, speech at the end. Um, And uh, as with all things, (laughs) spawns the possibility of sequels. Uh, Number two, Q Who. Now, Q has returned a couple of different times in the show at this point, um, from Encounter Farpoint, but most of them have been kind of blasé, not really, meh, okay. But this one, this is the one that sets the stage for things to come. Q challenges the crew, uh, specifically Picard, uh, who is giving a great... Uh, almost a riff on uh, on Kirk's risk. That's why we're out here speech. And Q says, all right, how about this? And blows the Enterprise thousands of light years off course and into an encounter with the Borg. And if you're not familiar with the Borg, if this is your first time through the series, the Borg are a race of cybernetic organisms, uh, similar in some ways to the Cybermen from Doctor Who. They are part organic, part machine. They enslave and assimilate other races. 
to get the raw material they need. They're not necessarily really interested in the people as much as they are the technology and anything that they think they can use to build upon and become bigger and better, they take. And if that means wiping out billions of people on a planet, they will. It is revealed partially in this episode that uh, one of my favorites from season one, The Neutral Zone, dealt with a, uh, a whole series of colonies that were wiped out on the Federation side of The Neutral Zone. It's revealed here that the Borg were actually responsible for those attacks, not the Romulans. And so this kind of helps uh, set the stage for the Borg to be one of those returning big bads to replace the Ferengi, which never worked properly. And as this episode progresses and the Borg continue to become what they will become, you realize we are very fortunate to be witnessing this. This is the birth of a villain to end all villains. This is like watching Doctor Who and seeing the Daleks aired for the first time. There, it's, it's that kind of magical quality about it. And it doesn't hurt that it has all kinds of other things going for it as well. Um, Guinan, the addition of Whoopi Goldberg to the cast in a recurring role, and uh, her abilities, which are left completely nebulous, but Q is somewhat afraid of her, so that's always a, uh, a plus. We have some, some great dialogue, uh, both from uh, John DeLancey and, and, and from Patrick Stewart. We have some fantastic action bits. We have some truly creepy, um, you know, watch-from-behind-the-couch kind of scare moments. And one of the strongest scores uh, that has been delivered through, throughout the run to date. This episode has it all. It is fantastic. And I won't spoil anything any further, but uh, it is it is up there among my all-time. And if I were to put together a top ten list uh, overall of the series, this would this would certainly be on it. Number one, uh, best episode of the season and an absolute must-watch if you're going to dip your toe into this, is Measure of a Man. Measure of a Man is a, uh, a data, another data episode in which a Commander Maddox has... Uh, been very, very curious about the android and building more of them. He wants to uh, basically take data apart, see what makes him tick, copy him, and make more of him so that Starfleet can have a whole race of androids. And we can send the androids off to go work in the mines, or we can send the androids off for the deep space explorations that are too dangerous for humans, or uh, you know, if there's a war, we can send the androids in first, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Data, of course, well, Data has no interest in being taken apart. He's like, no, I don't want to do this. But because he is a Starfleet officer, he can be ordered to comply with his commander's, uh, you know, wishes. He therefore resigns his commission. 
And then the legalities start. There is a question of whether or not data as a sentient being has the ability to say no. Is he a person in his own right? Does he have the ability to refuse an order? Can he, you know, refuse his commission? And so it starts a, uh, a very nifty uh, courtroom drama episode. And through some uh, <laughs> fancy uh, legal wrangling uh, due to a, a, a short-staffed, short-staffed starbase, uh, Picard is his defense attorney, and Riker, uh, it falls upon him to prosecute the case. And, wow, you want to talk high drama, you want to talk uh, extreme, well-written, you want to talk uh, some fantastic performances, you want to talk just the very core meat of what makes Star Trek Star Trek measure a man. This, this is it. This is probably the, the gold standard episode of episodes when it comes to things of that nature. And it's in season two, of all places. It's in the middle of this just kind of lackluster, craptastic season, which is, you know, very kind of frustrating. So those are, for me, those are the highs. Um, there are a handful of others that are fun. There are a handful of others that you should watch, uh, including Manhunt, where we are introduced to uh, Loxana Troy. Uh, so very wonderfully played by uh, uh, Major Barrett Roddenberry, uh, who is a character that, uh, wow, did I not like her when she first showed up. But uh, stick with her. And uh, if, if you would like more, if you would like a kind of more complete list than just my five kind of glossovers, uh, please feel free to message me and I'll, I'll, I'll set you on the, on the straight and narrow. But um, I think that'll do it uh, for, for season two. I've kind of prattled on a little bit longer than I even intended on that. So, um, ooh, there's that. And... Once again, I hope you are all safe. I hope you're all hunkered down and uh, and obeying the stay-at-home <laughs> orders. Don't be going out if you don't have to. I know you're all going stir-crazy, but hang in there. We'll get through this. And uh, you've got some Star Trek to watch now, so that's always a plus. And I will be back with uh, Star Trek 203 and my looks at, at Season 3 and more uh, in a later episode. Uh, once again, thank you all for supporting us over on the Traveling the Vortex side. Uh, we know that we've been on a little bit longer of a hiatus than we intended with all of this that's going on. Um, but we, of course, will also be back with some new content for you uh, coming up soon. It's a, a little difficult when, uh, you know, well, again, all three of us have, you know, essential jobs. Uh, so it's been uh, not as much fun on our end because we are still out fighting the good fight as it were but um again thank you thank you thank you and uh look for us on patreon and on the website etc etc until next time live long and prosper